This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Cooper Harris? Other questions here would be, was this a case of forgotten baby syndrome? And how does law enforcement determine appropriate and inappropriate behavior for people in a crisis? This case takes place in the state of Georgia in 2014 and primarily involves two people, Justin Ross Harris, who was 33 years old at the time of the incident, and his 22-month-old son, Cooper Harris. Justin Harris goes by his middle name, Ross, so I will refer to him as Ross. Ross married Leanna Taylor in 2006. He worked as a police dispatcher in Florida until 2009. In 2012, he would earn a bachelor's degree in commerce and business administration. He moved to Georgia to work for the Home Depot as a web developer. This takes us to June 18, 2014, outside Atlanta, Georgia. The high temperature for that day was 92 degrees. On his way to work, Ross was going to take Cooper to daycare. Cooper was in a rear-facing car seat in the back seat of Ross's vehicle, a 2011 Hyundai Tucson, which is a small SUV somewhat similar in size to the Nissan Rogue or a Toyota RAV4. At 8.57 a.m., he stopped at a Chick-fil-A restaurant in Vinings, Georgia, that was located near his employer and near the daycare. Ross was captured on video holding his son in that restaurant, so he knew Cooper was with him at that point. At 9.19 a.m., he drove to work from that restaurant and walked into his office at 9.25 a.m. Cooper was still in the SUV. At 12.30 p.m., two friends came by Ross's work, picked him up, and they all went to lunch. After this, they drove to a Home Depot store. Harris went into the store and bought light bulbs. The friends drove him back to his work, where Ross went over to his vehicle, opened the front driver's side door, and put the light bulbs on the driver's seat. It is likely that by this time, Cooper was already dead. Ross walked back into the office. At 3.16 p.m., Ross texted Leanna asking, When you getting my buddy? referring to the fact that Leanna was supposed to pick up Cooper from daycare on that day. When Ross was done at work, he walked back out to his vehicle. He entered it and drove away at 4.16 p.m. He was on his way to an AMC movie theater to meet up with friends. They were going to watch the movie 22 Jump Street. So either way, he was in for a bad experience this evening. Only a few minutes after driving, Ross pulls over into a shopping mall. He pulled Cooper out of the back seat, and he called out to bystanders for help. He would later say that he caught a glimpse of Cooper in the rearview mirror. One of the bystanders started performing CPR on Cooper as Ross walks away around to the other side of his vehicle and places three phone calls from his cell phone. The first one was to his wife. It appears as though she did not pick up. The second one was to his employer, and the third one was to the daycare. That one lasted five to six minutes. A few minutes after this, Leanna arrived at the daycare. When she was told by the workers that Cooper was never dropped off, 
she would say something to the effect of, Ross must have left Cooper in the car. It could be considered unusual that she would have jumped to that precise conclusion. As the police started their investigation, they had suspicions about Leanna, but she was never arrested. At the same time, they had concerns about Ross Harris. They found that he was having a number of extramarital affairs. The day that Cooper died, Ross had been communicating via text with at least six different females. One was under the age of 18. The police also felt as though Ross's reactions were not genuine. For example, in the back of the police car, which was recorded from the dashboard, Ross appeared to be distraught and crying in one moment, but then when no one was looking at him, he was calm. Ross was charged with multiple crimes, including malice murder. During jury selection, the judge decided to grant Ross a change of venue, so the trial was held in Gwynn County as opposed to Cobb County. The trial was fairly straightforward. The prosecution argued that Ross simply wanted to be free from his marriage so he could have affairs. Cooper was standing in the way. The defense said that Ross did cause Cooper's death, but it was due to negligence. It was not intentional murder. In November of 2016, Ross was convicted of eight charges, including malice murder. He was convicted in connection with sending those explicit messages to underage females as well. Justin Ross Harris was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 32 years to be served consecutively. Ross and Leanna divorced before his conviction, but Leanna maintains that Ross is not guilty of intentional homicide. Now moving to my analysis. I will start by attempting to answer this question. Was Justin Ross Harris really guilty of murder? I will look at the evidence both for and against the idea that he was guilty. So first looking at the guilty side. Cooper died because Ross left him in the vehicle. Neither side has denied this was the case. So as a starting point, Ross did cause Cooper's death. The police suggested there was no way Ross could have missed the stench when he opened the vehicle after Cooper was dead. Even if he somehow could have missed it toward midday, there is no way he would have missed it at the end of his workday. Then we see different online activity that was not good for Ross's case. He watched a video where a veterinarian talked about the dangers of leaving animals in hot cars. Ross deleted some of his search history from his computer, but it's not clear why he did that. Some people do that on a regular basis. He searched how to survive in prison. It is important to keep in mind, however, that he was committing crimes that did not involve murder. So it could have been that he believed he was going to prison for those crimes. He clicked on a link about a child-free lifestyle. When Leanna was about to see Ross in the interview room at the police station, among other things, she said, did you say too much? This certainly just could have been because he talked a lot and she knew the police were not on their side. Ross was having multiple affairs, including one that involved committing felonies. So he was already committing serious crimes. It makes sense that murder would have been something he was capable of. I don't know if this helped the prosecution as much as they thought, but it certainly doesn't help the defense. Ross looked like he was putting on a show at the Chick-fil-A restaurant because he was introducing his son to the workers. They already knew who Ross was, but this was the first time they'd ever seen Cooper almost like Ross was trying to make sure people knew his son was with him at that time and they had a good relationship, like he was happy to introduce Cooper to those people. The prosecution made a big deal 
out of Ross's inappropriate emotions. He wasn't acting right for someone who just lost his son. I want to mention this here because it did help the prosecution, but I don't think it really means anything. I'll talk more about this later. Ross certainly should have avoided complaining about how the back of the police car was too hot, though. That was a clear mistake that he made. It may have been because of a lack of empathy. This would be like Bernie Madoff complaining that he was not getting enough interest from his checking account. Now looking at the evidence pointing to not guilty. Many people said that Ross was a great father. This point did not seem to be disputed at all. Even the various love interests that he had, or people that he had sex with anyway, said that he seemed to be a good father. So in a sense, they were testifying for the prosecution, but they ended up helping the defense to some extent. The light bulb incident where Ross put the light bulbs on his driver's seat was used by the prosecution, but I think it's actually indicative of innocence more so than guilt. If he had planned to commit this murder, why would he open the car door and put those light bulbs in? What possible advantage could this give him? He didn't check on Cooper, so it wasn't like he was making sure that he was dead. At his work, Ross actually parked under a tree. Of course, it didn't matter. The vehicle still became extremely hot inside. But did he know that? If he was trying to kill Cooper, why would he take the chance that the shade might slow the vehicle heating up? Now, the issue of the search history seems to be on the side of the prosecution. Again, they had evidence about him watching a video about animals in vehicles. Interestingly, Ross did not search for that video, and the Harrises own a dog. Ross never searched for anything related to hot cars. As far as that link about the child-free lifestyle, a friend sent that to him as a joke. Ross never searched for that. What he did search for the night before Cooper's death actually seems to be exculpatory. He and his wife were planning a cruise. He searched for information about whether kids could go on a cruise for free. Regarding Ross's emotional state, one of the police officers testified that he never saw Ross cry even once, and he showed no emotion whatsoever. In his report, however, that same officer indicated that Harris was extremely upset when the police arrived at the scene. Now, I kind of get worried anytime police comment on emotional factors. They don't always seem to have a really good connection about what people are feeling. But here we see just plain two different stories. He said one thing on the report and another thing on the stand. The females with whom Ross was interacting testified that Ross talked about how much he loved Cooper and they said that he said he would never leave his wife. One of the witnesses at the shopping mall where Ross pulled Cooper out of the car initially said that his emotional response was appropriate, but later at trial said he was not sincere. Again, we see a change of story, and again, we don't see clear evidence that that witness understood emotional reactions. They weren't a mental health expert as far as I know. So we're just looking at this opinion of a person who witnesses this incident, but then also looking at their inference, looking at their interpretation of the situation, not just the objective facts. What they actually saw, like his different actions, would be one thing, but they were really speaking to a mental state. Ross was described as absent-minded. This could explain his behavior. This point, I think, is in the defense column. A fireworks explosion on New Year's Eve in 2005 cost Ross his hearing in one of his ears. Therefore, 
he would have been less likely to hear the sounds in the morning that could have reminded him that Cooper was still in the car. His sexual behavior was not entirely a secret from Leanna. The Harrises had sought counseling, and Leanna had offered Ross a divorce on a prior occasion, but they were trying to work things out. Nobody's going to give an award to Ross for working hard to fix the marriage with all the affairs and stuff like that, but the idea that this was a secret was not accurate. So now moving back to the question, was Ross actually guilty? Justin Ross Harris was charged with many crimes. I think he was guilty of the crimes related to him communicating with the girl who was under 18. As far as the murder of Cooper Harris, there is the legal guilt to consider and the actual guilt. As far as the legal aspect, that is, was he guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't think he was. I think there is a reasonable doubt in this case. For example, he simply forgot Cooper was in the car. I think a charge of negligent homicide could be supported, but malice murder seems like a stretch. As for actual guilt, I thought about this for a while. I really don't know the answer to this. If I apply the million-dollar standard I've talked about before, like if somebody who could magically know the truth was willing to give me a million dollars if I came up with the correct answer, so I had to say yes or no, and if I was right, I get the money. I suppose I would have to go with no. It's quite suspicious that he happened to go to the Chick-fil-A restaurant that morning and introduce everybody to his son, and of course it doesn't look good that he was committing other crimes at the same time. This speaks to a possible pattern of impulsivity and poor decision-making. Also, he was willing to pay money to see 22 Jump Street. Even still, when considering the big picture, I know a lot of people believe he's guilty, but I'm just not quite there. I've seen people react in very unconventional ways when confronted with incredible stress. There is no normal behavior after something like that. I'm not convinced that Ross Harris had the planning skills necessary to have committed this crime intentionally and leave behind so little evidence. So if I believe he's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and I'm not really convinced he actually committed the murder, what do I think actually happened? This is just a theory. Of course, I don't know what actually happened. Ross was trapped in a destructive behavior cycle. He knew that what he was doing was illegal. He knew he could go to prison, but he did not want to stop communicating with all those various females. He had also paid to visit sex workers in the weeks before the incident. This behavior was exciting to him. He looked forward to it. It was taking over his life, filling up every spare moment. It was highly distracting. That morning on his way to work with Cooper in the back seat, he was focused on this continued communication. With his mind locked on that, he completely forgot to drop off Cooper. So one could make the argument that while planning to commit another crime, he took actions that led to Cooper's death. Again, negligent homicide seems supported in this case. His supposedly atypical reaction was based on the fact that he was unusual, perhaps insecure, disagreeable, impulsive, socially awkward, and narcissistic. I've seen other cases where the same argument is made and the person was not guilty. This idea that they weren't acting right in this unusual circumstance. Everybody responds differently to high-stress events, as I mentioned. The police did not know if he was acting or not. They had no mental health training on which to base that assessment. It was pure speculation. His incorrect emotional response doesn't really point to guilt or innocence. 
I think what happened in this case was that the police encountered someone who was a criminal and who was strange, but not necessarily someone who had just committed murder. Something else to consider in this case is how inconsistent the justice system is regarding forgotten baby syndrome. Forgotten baby syndrome is when people leave babies in cars, but not intentionally. In the research literature, we see that some people are never charged. Others are charged with crimes like involuntary manslaughter or criminally negligent homicide, and still others are charged with murder. Many of those who are never charged were still accused by the police for responding inappropriately. The police are never on the side of somebody they think is guilty. Even without any training in mental health, police often make definitive claims about human behavior. There seems to be a myth that if something is important, it can't be forgotten. Like people look at this case and say, well, maybe he could forget some things, but there's no way he could have forgotten Cooper was in the car. But that's simply not true. People forget all types of important things throughout the course of their lives. In order for somebody to be guilty of murder, they must have mens rea. That is, a criminal state of mind. So we see intent, awareness, or some knowledge is required. I just don't see how, in this case, that standard has been met. The idea that one person can do this and not be charged at all, and another person can spend the rest of their life in prison, speaks to the lack of knowledge about forgotten baby syndrome. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.